Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. It is great to be back here, and it's uh, great to be doing another episode. A little bit late uh, for this episode, but uh, we're doing it anyway. And that that actually segues me into, uh, I guess, the update for this episode. This episode number 60, by the way. Good benchmark for the podcast. The schedule for the podcast. I I mentioned a few episodes ago that there was going to be yet another update to the schedule of the podcast. Here's the thing about the schedule. The schedule is probably going to be erratic for a while, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. It's going to be a little bit here and a little bit there. It's, it may not adhere to the regular schedule that I had set up, which was Monday episodes and Thursday episodes. Uh, it could it could bounce around quite a bit, but uh, every episode will be, well, barring some catastrophe, every episode will be a new episode. There, there won't be any best of episodes like we were doing for a while. It's going to be regular episodes for the most part, but um, a little bit off schedule, for lack of a better way of putting it. And we'll see how that works out and see if that uh, see if that works better for me. It works better for production, I guess I should say. Uh, or if the, I'll return back to the regularly scheduled program, so to speak, the uh, Monday episodes and the Thursday episodes. But in either case, glad to have you here on the ep- on the podcast. And so on this episode, we're gonna learn. We're gonna get some wisdom from Dr. Franklin. We're actually gonna start to dive into the wisdom of the man, Benjamin Franklin. And we're gonna we're gonna get a little flicker and glimmer of what his wisdom was like, and he's going to educate us on some things. And this is going to continue, obviously, as we march on and talk about Dr. Franklin. And so I thank you for joining me on this episode. Benjamin Franklin will be our guest. Very grateful to Dr. Franklin for joining us, so to speak. And uh, why don't we get started in the letters from Dr. Franklin, and let's do that right now. All right. And has anybody noticed an echo in my recording recently? There's more of an echo than there used to be. Uh, I'm actually recording a little bit differently than I used to, different different location, and trying to deal with the echo situation. I'm trying to figure out how I want to deal with that. I got a couple options on that regard. Uh, it's it's always something, you know, with the production. Originally, it was, you know, what microphone is actually going to work and sound good, and then, you know, how am I going to, what software am I going to use, and then what's, the, how about this, and how about that, and how am I going to host this, where am I going to put it, and how are people going to download it? And now, now I'm thinking about this echo. Uh, it just never ends. A little inside baseball uh, for all you folks out there curious about that kind of thing. But uh, here we go. The very first letter we're going to read here is uh, from Dr. Benjamin Franklin to William Franklin. That would be his son, by the way. Interesting relationship between the two. It uh, doesn't end well, as I recall. We'll, We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And this was written on September the 7th, 1774. And we're going to start a little way down. We're not going to start at the beginning of the letter. We're going to start a little way down into the body of the letter. And I quote, You say my presence is wished for at the Congress, but no person besides in America has given me the least information of such a desire. And it is thought by the great friends of the colonies here that I ought to stay till the result of the Congress arrives, when my presence here may, they suppose, be of use. In my opinion, all depends on the Americans themselves. If they make and keep firm resolutions not to consume British manufacturers till their grievances are redressed and their rights acknowledged, this ministry must fall, and the aggrieving laws be repealed. 
This is the opinion of all wise men here. End quote. Interesting. This is a little bit of a foreshadowing of Franklin's return to America and the Congress. He will obviously be returning, but not yet, but he does speak of it. There is some desire on the part of somebody, apparently, to have him back there. And understandably so, Benjamin Franklin is the old wise man. And I think a lot of people in, in um, the Americas saw him that way, perhaps, because he was he was older, much older than most of the other founding fathers, obviously, quite a bit older than a John Adams or a Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson or even a George Washington. He'd been around for quite some time. He was known in the colonies from way back when. He was in the newspaper business quite a bit. He published a number of things. Poor Richard's Almanac is probably one of the more famous things that he published. That is to say, famous today. A lot of people know about him, Poor Richard's Almanac. And of course, the uh, the letters he published uh, way back before that even, which was the, uh, the Silence Do Good letters, which was really just a, uh, as I understand it from my study of it, was a means for him to get something published in, I think it was his brother's newspaper. His brother didn't think too highly of his writing, apparently. That's that's the way I remember that. I may be getting some of that factually wrong, but I think that's accurate, though. Feel free to double-check me on that. But I do believe a lot of people in the colonies looked at him as the old wise man. I mean, because of his scientific achievements, he was known throughout the throughout Europe and throughout the uh, the colonies as a great great achiever in that regard. I believe one phrase that was used was he was the he was the man who tamed lightning uh, with his uh, with his electrical experiments and the lightning rod and all those things. Uh, Franklin is one of those indispensable persons, in my humble opinion. There were a number of these folks in the in the colonies at this time, people that I firmly believe without them around, the American Revolution may very well not have succeeded. It's hard to imagine a revolution without Dr. Franklin. I think he was perhaps, because he was the old wise man, I think he was perhaps seen as, I, I, at least I look at him as somewhat of a moderating force uh, for some of the more hot-headed folks, an actual, a compass if you will, for some of the some of the folks who were uh, seemingly rudderless during this particular period, it's very difficult to figure out which way to go. Doctor Franklin seemed to understand better than some, in my opinion. And in Doctor Franklin's opinion, let's read this line again here. Quote: In my opinion, all depends on the Americans themselves. End quote. That was very true of the of the Americans in 1774, and also of Americans today. If you're looking for anybody else to solve these issues, nobody else is going to solve these issues. It's going to be the American people. And when I say the people, I don't mean the politicians. I don't mean the lobbyists. I don't mean the special interests. And I don't mean the corporations. And I don't mean the uh, the large money handlers. And I don't mean the super wealthy. I mean, I mean you, the regular American. Just you. And if you're looking for all of those other folks that I just mentioned to try to solve any problems for you, I think you're going to find that they're on the other side of the table. What do I mean by that? They're in the same position today that perhaps the parliament in Britain was in 1774 against, you know, on the opposite side of the table from the Americans. Potentially. That's an observation on my part uh, to put that in a modern context for you, but that's that's the way that I look at it. And there's, there's usually two reasons why Americans look to an authority figure or a corporation or a money handler or a politician or somebody or a lobbyist or somebody of that nature to try to lead the way instead of just instead of instead of understanding what direction they should go themselves. The two reasons usually are that Americans, obviously, this would be the uneducated 
group of Americans, they, they have no idea what way to go. They're rudderless, like I described previously. That they're they're directionless. And the other group, the other group of people who would do that are, for lack of a better way, just just lazy. Uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, they're just lazy. You got to try to avoid both of those. You got to have a direction. You gotta you gotta have a compass. You gotta know which way the wind is blowing, and you can't be lazy. Either one of those things could doom a nation if the people are uh, of such character as either one of those or both. But I like that line from Dr. Franklin, quote, all depends on the Americans themselves, end quote. Take that quote to heart. Dr. Franklin knows what he's talking about here. Let us continue on, quote, I do not so much as you do wonder that the Massachusetts have not offered payment for the tea because of the uncertainty of the act, which gives them no surety that the port shall be opened on their making that payment. No specific sum is demanded. No one knows what will satisfy the customs house officers, nor who the others are that must be satisfied, nor what will satisfy them. And after all, they are in the king's power how much of the port shall be opened. As to doing justice before they asked it, that should have been thought of by the legislature here before they demanded it of the Bostonians. They have extorted many thousands pounds from America unconstitutionally under color of acts of parliament and with an armed force of this money they ought to make restitution. They might first have taken out payment for the tea and returned the rest. But you who are a thorough courtier see everything with government eyes, end quote. See everything with government eyes. Very, very interesting. Now, what is this thing between, you can almost sense some tension in this paragraph between Dr. Franklin and William Franklin, and rightfully so. William Franklin was more of a loyalist than Dr. Franklin. They, 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 really did not see eye to eye when it came to a great deal of this problem between the colonies and Great Britain. And you're, you're starting to see a little bit of that here. This obviously gets worse, worse with time. And, you know, in that relationship, you will find the divide that can happen between Americans who, quote, see everything with government eyes, end quote, and then everybody else. Now, what does that mean to see everything with government eyes? You know, it's quite a curious thing. Back then, obviously, you know, William Franklin may have seen things with a, with a loyalist perspective uh, from the from the eyes of the king, from the perspective of the king and parliament. In most places, it, it can ebb and it can flow. In the United States today, people who see things with government eyes are very peculiar people. They tend to only do so when the government is made up of persons with whom they agree. In other words, when their side wins the election, then they see everything with government eyes. Isn't that interesting? And when their side does not win, they cease seeing everything with government eyes. It, you know, it's one of the most bizarre things that you will observe about Americans today. And I, I think that happens elsewhere in the world. It's not just the United States where this phenomenon happens. In many places in the world, and it's not so much that they're seeing it with government eyes, they're seeing it with, through an ideological lens, so the, the government is really just a, a lever for the ideology, whatever that ideology happens to be. Very curious. And William Franklin here, you know, may very well have been 
same kind of character. Obviously, there were two governments at quarrel here. There was the, the government in the colonies, legitimate government, the colonial charters, we've talked about that, the government of Massachusetts. We've also talked a little bit about the structure of government of Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Virginia, as, as examples. Those are in some of the back catalog of podcasts, podcast episodes. And William Franklin could, could have very easily, you know, taken up with the government in the colonies and seen everything, quote-unquote, through government eyes there. But he didn't. He, he, he was, again, a loyal, more of a loyalist perspective. So it, so what Dr. Franklin refers to here as government eyes is not so much government eyes, but ideological eyes. Now, how do you avoid something like that? How do you avoid seeing everything with ideological eyes? A couple things you want to avoid. Don't get caught up in the cult of personality. In other words, don't hitch your wagon to an individual, uh, politically, whatever, whatever, what have you. Just don't. And also, don't hitch your wagon to organizations, groups, uh, things of that nature, because the thing about th organizations and groups is they can change with time, and you may not notice the subtle differences. You may not notice the subtle differences, and that can be a problem. What you want to do is you want to hitch your wagon to a foundational belief system. You remember when I said that the Bill of Rights was sacrosanct? It's sacred. That's basically what I'm talking about. It's sacred. It's sacrosanct. You know, and it doesn't matter who is in elected office. It doesn't matter who's in the Congress. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter. It's sacred. It's sacrosanct. You do not touch that. And if you try to touch it, you're my enemy. You are the enemy of freedom and liberty, and you are the enemy of the Founding Fathers. And I'm not making that up, and I'm not trying to be dramatic. That's just the way that it is. That's black and white. And it's easy on that issue, on the Bill of Rights, to be black and white. It's real freaking easy. And you should thank your lucky stars that it is so black and white as that, because that makes it easy. It makes it really easy. So there you have it. You know, it doesn't, it then, because if you do that, it doesn't matter which side you're on. Another, I mean, by the way, FYI, you shouldn't be on any side except the side of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. But aside from that, it doesn't matter what side you're on. Whoever, it doesn't matter who's in the government. If they're your person, if they're the other person's guy or gal or whoever, if they're not on your side, if they're on the other side, whatever. If they, if they, if they stand against the Bill of Rights, they are an enemy of the people. That's the way it's always been in the history of the United States. Not anymore. For some reason, we've gotten into this weird gray area that shouldn't exist where we start to waffle around and go, well, I don't know, my guy's in office, so and he's against the Bill of Rights, so I should be against the Bill of Rights too because I've hitched my wagon to this personality, to this ideology, to this group, this organization. Stop doing that. Otherwise, you're going to end up like William Franklin here who hitched his wagon to this, this idea, this romantic idea of the king. He hitched his wagon to that romanticism of the royalty. And he got so caught up in that, that he couldn't see reality. His father could see it, but he couldn't. He didn't really buy into the American cause. And in my humble opinion, he should have. It was the right choice to make. His father made the right decision. Because his father, although certainly, you know, and most of these guys, honestly, were loyal to the, the government of Britain and loyal to the king for the longest time, until they saw their, their rights being violated. And they were more tethered to their rights and their liberties than they were this romantic notion of the king, or this loyalty to the parliament. Their rights came first, their liberties came first, their sacred, ancient rights came first, because they didn't wed themselves to some organization, they didn't wed themselves to some lunatic. And that's one of the big, fundamental lessons of the Founding Fathers, and it doesn't get taught anymore. You think they teach that in public school? They don't. So if, you, if you're sending your kids into public school thinking they're going to get this message, ain't going to happen. Not this year, not next year, not in a million years. It's, not, it's never going to happen. They're going to get the message from you, and that's it. Or this podcast, one of the two. 
government eyes. Again, it's not so much government eyes, it's ideological eyes. Uh, William Franklin is it, it was, throughout the entire Revolutionary War, he was blinded by this um, ideology that he was stuck with instead of just seeing reality. We do, we do get back to this notion in this paragraph of restitution. Quote, I do not so much as you do wonder that the Massachusetts have not offered payment for the tea. End quote. That's the Boston Tea Party. So the tea that was destroyed. Why don't the, We've talked about this before. Why didn't the uh, parliament demand payment for it? And that's it. Just leave it at that. Because that should have been the reaction of the parliament was to, would be to ask for restitution to be made. Ask for payment. And in my humble opinion, restitution should have been made in some form. And actually, Benjamin Franklin has the answer to that right here. But we'll talk about that here in a minute. But they should have asked for restitution, if anything. But instead, what did they do? They basically abolished the government of Massachusetts, sent in a military dictator. They sent in military troops to force an armed confrontation. They upended the judiciary and the legal system. And they shut the port of Boston and impeded commerce for a great many people. Overreaction? Much? Yes, because this is what tyrants do. And and here's the, here's the newsflash, ladies and gentlemen. It was never about the tea. It was never about restitution. This was an opportunity for the king to drop the hammer. This is what tyrants do. They wait for an opportunity to drop the hammer. And it doesn't matter what the opportunity is. It could be something like the Boston Tea Party, which was just a stupid mistake, uh, an error in judgment on the part of some people who, destro who decided to destroy some tea. Or it could be a catastrophe. It could be a calamity of some kind. Tyrants will use the opportunity. They, they almost, it's like they sit around twiddling their thumbs just waiting for something like this to happen. And when they do, they get excited and they spring into action. And that's exactly what King George did right here. Then he sends in the troops. He wanted to do it. He wanted to have an excuse and now he's got it. There you go. And we've read letters from some folks in previous episodes where they actually speculated whether or not King George III was trying to force a military confrontation just so he would have the excuse. And in my opinion, he probably was just looking for an excuse. This, is, this, this, this notion, this thought is not coming from me. It's coming from the letters, if you remember that from previous episodes. Again, 90% of what I say on this podcast, even if it doesn't come directly from the letters, believe me, it's coming from the Founding Fathers. On previous letters that we've read, out of other letters that I have read that I haven't brought onto the podcast yet, or may never because of time, so on and so forth. It's all about the tyranny at the end of the day with King George III. He's trying to drop the hammer. You don't send in troops and do what he does without that being the case. If he was a rational, cool, calm, collected individual, he would have demanded restitution. But what's Benjamin Franklin's response to that even? Quote, They have extorted many thousands pounds from America unconstitutionally under color of acts of parliament and with an armed force. Of this money, they ought to make restitution, end quote. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Benjamin Franklin just added another layer of confirmation that this argument that the Founding Fathers had was legitimate. This is not stupid, irrational, trigger-happy, shoot-from-the-hip, entitlement, didn't want to pay their taxes, blah, 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 crap. He said it right here, quote, They have extorted many thousands of pounds from America unconstitutionally, end quote. Benjamin Franklin was not a dramatic individual when it came to separation from Great Britain and making the accusations against the British Parliament that were made. He was he was not a firebrand on, the, on these issues, as best as I can tell from reading history. Samuel Adams was. I mean, with Samuel Adams, you know, uh, when he, whenever he was talking about the British Parliament, for the most part, it was, it was uh, not all the time, but, you know, on occasion, it was fire-breathing oratory. It's like a prosecutor in a courtroom with that guy. Theatrical, almost, in some cases. 
Benjamin Franklin, I never got that impression about, about Dr. Franklin. It's my opinion, but I never got that, I never got that impression. So for him to say that, quote, they have extorted many thousands of pounds from America unconstitutionally, end quote. That's a serious accusation, and you should take it seriously. This isn't a game with Dr. Franklin. And when the government does something unconstitutionally, that's a big frickin' problem, not to be taken lightly. Because oftentimes when governments do it, they do it deliberately. I'll say that one more time. Oftentimes when governments do something unconstitutional, they do it deliberately. I want you to think about that every time that the Supreme Court or any other court strikes something down as unconstitutional. Now, sometimes it's not unconstitutional, and sometimes it actually is. The the uh, the great the, the the class one example that I used was back in the late 1800s. The income tax was declared a portion of it was declared unconstitutional, and rightfully so, it was. And they had to come in and pass a constitutional amendment to actually get that freaking thing through. That was a case of the government doing something clearly unconstitutional. The government said so. I agree. And I think the government did it deliberately. I think the government knew what it was doing when it did that. I'm not making that up. Oh my gosh, Roman, are you trying to say that the government deliberately tries to violate the Constitution? Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. Not all the time, but occasionally they do. The government is like a child trying to test the limits of what everybody around them will tolerate. They're trying to test the limits. And if you tolerate it, they're going to push the limit further, and then further, and then further. That's why I say again, the Bill of Rights is sacred, because as soon as you start to move that lever, it'll be moved again, and again, and again, until there's nothing left. You cannot let one square inch of the Bill of Rights be moved, or else you will lose all of it. Mark my words, because the fight is never over. It goes on, and on, and on, and on. I said I said it a few episodes ago, a thousand years from now, if the Constitution is still there and the United States is still here, somebody will be attacking the First Amendment. Probably whole swaths of people will be still, a thousand years from now, still assaulting the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. I guarantee it, because it never ends. What is it they said? The price of liberty is eternal vigilance? Do you think the Founding Fathers say things like that because they're bored on a Friday afternoon and drunk on the good wine and just don't have anything better to say? No. They say it because it's real, and because they're trying to send a message to you. It's like a message in a bottle. Kind of like the instruction manual to the Constitution that we're reading right now. What I am reading to you right now is the instruction manual to the United States Constitution. This is not just a letter from Dr. Franklin to his son, the Loyalist. This is a small snippet of the instruction manual, and we ought pay attention to Dr. Franklin. Not just you, but me. I need to pay attention too. We all do, and we all need to encourage those people around us to pay attention. This is serious business, and anytime anybody makes an accusation of something being done unconstitutionally, that's serious business, especially from Dr. Franklin. Uh, a lot of people throw around this notion of unconstitutional acts, this, that, and the other thing, and frankly speaking, in modern times, they don't, know, they don't have the first clue what the heck they're talking about. Dr. Franklin knows what he's talking about. Not a stupid guy. Not by anybody's calculation. Now, this, this, thing, this, this thing that Parliament is doing, this unconstitutionality that he's talking about, the tyranny that he describes, like, why didn't they ask for restitution of the tea? And the answer is, of course, because that was never the issue. It was never the issue, the restitution, the cost of the tea. That wasn't the issue. What was it then? It was all about tyranny, of course. And I do want to pass along this warning. That, you know, there's a lot of offshoots of the British Empire. I have described the United States, not, I don't think I've ever described it this way on the podcast, not directly anyway. The United States is really just an offshoot of the British Empire. 
And I hate to trivialize the United States. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not trying to say that the United States is just some underling of the British Empire. That's not what I'm saying. It's quite a bit more significant than just some underling of the British Empire. But it, it is very clearly, if you study history, an offshoot of the British Empire. That's what it is. And so are a number of other countries, just offshoots of the British Empire. And the British Empire has a, has a legacy to it. It has a history. And some of that history is good. And some of that, some of that history is pretty terrible. And part of the terrible history of the British Empire is tyranny. It has a tier, a streak of tyranny that runs straight through it, straight through the heart of it, through the soul of the British Empire. There is this track record of tyranny, not always and not at all times. There, there is this, the, the, the British Empire is defined almost by this perpetual battle between these notions of freedom and liberty and tyranny, these two forces constantly at war with one another. And that battle continues today in the offshoots of the British Empire. Every single branch and the United States is one of those branches. Every single branch of the British Empire contends with this today. The problem is, is the people who populate these branches of the British Empire do not act like this is a problem, or they and they do not act like they even know that this is a thing. And, and the answer is because they don't know that this is a thing. These are the uneducated people that we keep talking about. Not you, not me, but these other people. And there is this dark cloud that hangs over all of what was the British Empire. And if you think that cloud has passed, if you think it has passed by the door, you're wrong. And my warning to all the former members of the British Empire is to watch closely for this kind of thing. You have, you have it in your DNA. You have that spirit that hangs over your country. Every single one of you, including the United States. I'm not going to leave us out, but I'm talking to all of the nations that were once a part of the British Empire. Tyranny runs deep in the empire. And its branches. Every offshoot of the British Empire is affected by this. There is a, like, almost a gravitational pull towards tyranny. I've seen it. In every bit of history that I have ever read about the British Empire, I see it consistently. It's one of those things, you know, the history repeats itself, and this, that, and the other. It's all, it's all wrapped up in that. And if you think that, that that legacy of the British Empire is over, or that phase of the British Empire is over, you're delusional. It never ends. And it's still there, waiting in the wings, and in some cases it's not waiting, it's, it's active. It's active and it's moving. So, warning to all of you former members of the British Empire, every country around the world who was a part of this thing called the British Empire, you need to pay attention. Pay. A. Tension. And if you have friends and neighbors and associates and family members who are too busy watching Netflix to pay attention to that kind of thing, you need to grab them by the shirt collar, not literally, but metaphorically. You need to grab them, you need to get a hold of them, and you need to say to them quite clearly that this is a problem. Start reading some history. Crack open some history books and start reading. Or, good news, there's a podcast you can listen to, because we will talk about it uh, in various ways, all, in, all linked up directly with the letters from the Founding Fathers. I'm just trying to make a point here, though. Uh, this is something that had to be said. Now, that letter is completed for, well, we didn't read the whole letter. Like I said, most of the time we don't read the whole letter on this podcast. I read portions of the letter. I save, I save you folks a lot of time, believe me, by not reading some of the intros and the conclusions that really have nothing to do with what we're talking about. But good news, there is another letter from Dr. Franklin that we're going to read on this episode here today. And this is a letter written from Dr. Benjamin Franklin to a Jonathan Williams on September the 28th of 1774 on a similar topic, obviously. Quote, I did once wish the destroyed tea to be voluntarily paid for, before this or any compulsory act should be formed, but now my opinion is that you should state an account 
charged government here with all the tea duties and other unconstitutional revenue duties that have been extorted from you by an armed force under color of acts of parliament. From the commencement of those acts, then give credit for the tea and strike a balance. If it be against you, offer to pay it. If it be for you, demand it. As to the damage done to your trade by the act, I would not bring that into the account. For I believe your virtuous frugality now becoming so general and so rationally fashionable will do ten times more damage to the trade of this country, while at the same time it will both reimburse and enrich you, end quote. He's talking about the same kind of thing. He, wanted, he says originally he wanted the tea to be voluntarily paid for, but eventually he, he's, he talks about this credit and this balance and all this money that's being extorted. Because he, he, he mentions it, the same exact thing again here in this letter. Quote, And other unconstitutional revenue duties that have been extorted from you by an armed force under color of acts of parliament. End quote. Is that not exactly what he said in the letter to his son? The previous letter we just read. Same thing. When a man says it twice, in two different letters, separated by an entire month, to two different people, I tend to mean I tend to think that that's exactly what he thinks about a subject. He wasn't just angry at his son and spouting off at the hip. He really does believe that the colonies have been mistreated and their revenue, in some cases, unconstitutionally drawn out of them by the parliament. That is a serious crime that has been committed. A crime. And whenever anything unconstitutional is done, again, it is a crime. It's illegal. And it doesn't matter whether the government thinks it's okay. It doesn't matter whether the government thinks it's the right thing to do or a necessary thing to do. It doesn't matter. It's still illegal and it's still wrong. And he meant, he, he basically alludes to this non-importation, non-consumption, this battle in trade that is going on between the colonies and Britain. There was We've talked about the non-importation, non-consumption before. There were some letters that really went in depth on this that I didn't really get into. But Benjamin Franklin believes this to be a solution to the problem. In other words, just economically hurt the king and the parliament and Great Britain. And keep in mind, again, when he talks about this country, when he says, quote, will do ten times more damage to the trade of this country, end quote. This country, in, in this letter and the previous, uh, he means Great Britain. Keep in mind, he's writing these from London. He is in London at this time. I forgot to mention that earlier in this episode. But this non-importation, non-consumption, you know, th there was this... Um, I think it was the ship's carpenter in that letter from William Tudor, previously in the John Adams episodes, where he mentioned this uh, this ship's carpenter who was who was willing to eat acorns out of the trees instead of eating the food that he was accustomed to, if that's what it took to hurt the trade of Great Britain. And I, I've joked before how many Americans today wouldn't even give up their Netflix account for their freedom and liberty. But these people at this time seemed committed to this non-importation, non-consumption, if necessary, to hurt Great Britain sufficient enough to get their freedom and their liberty back. These, these men and women of 76, as I call them, were really some outstanding people, very committed, very determined. And I think, you know, Winston Churchill was said at one point, you know, if the British Empire should stand for a thousand years, let them say that this was our finest hour. That was a remarkable thing to say. Because, I mean, there's a lot of good moments in the history of the British Empire. Of course, there's a lot of bad moments like I talked about earlier. I went on a rant about that. But there's a lot of good moments, too. I give credit where credit is due. I, you know, I really do believe at times, I refer, and again, in my previous episode, I, I mentioned yet again that, the, that I believe the generation of 76 to be the greatest generation. I stand by that. And I wonder at times if the United States should last for a thousand years, will these men and women of 76 still be the best of us? the best that we ever were. I hope not, but thus far, that is actually true. They, the, 250 years later, they are the best of us. 
Nobody, no generation has bested these people yet. And that's, that's the challenge of America, is we have to try to be as good or better than them. That's a tall order, because these guys were something special. Their commitment to a cause, their, their commitment to their rights and their liberties, their ability to look at, like, like we look at the Declaration, or excuse me, like we look at the Bill of Rights today and we say that that is sacred. At least you and I do, probably. There's a bunch of other Americans who would just as soon crap all over that document as to say that it's sacred. But for all of us who look at that document and say that it's sacred, the Founding Fathers looked at the, what they viewed as their fundamental sacred rights, and they said, too, that this is sacrosanct. We will not budge. And they stuck with it. Even when the British Army took to the field and shot at them with cannon fire, and in some cases burned their houses to the ground, they still said, Thus far shalt thou go, but no farther. Not on my watch. And that's a beautiful thing. Sad that it had to come to that. I w frankly speaking, personally, I wish the King of Great Britain would have seen reason, and the colonies and Britain be reconciled, and there be an acknowledgement of fundamental basic rights like the Bill of Rights like we have today. And now look, I mean, we, we fought so hard for the Bill of Rights all those years, right? 250 years we fought for it. Longer than that, actually, we think about it. And there's a whole swath of Americans that are just ready to wad that document up and throw it in the trash can. All because of convenience or some perceived notion of safety and security. And, and again, remember what Benjamin Franklin, I think it was Benjamin Franklin himself said, those who trade liberty for security deserve neither. I mean, do we never learn any of these lessons? I mean, you and I do. When I say we, I mean the general we, as in the society that is the United States, in the aggregate. I, sometimes I, I, I want to beat my head on the desk out of, out of just sheer frustration. Let us continue. Quote, The cry against America here is greatly abated. New advocates for her are daily arising. The manufacturers and merchants begin to have their apprehensions and will soon begin to feel what they apprehend. They will then bestir themselves in opposition to these absurd measures. You have only to be firm, united, and persevering, end quote. So he, again, he really believes that this non-importation, non-consumption, this hit on trade is going to affect the merchants, the markets, and it's going to turn things around. Unfortunately, time is not on Benjamin Franklin's side. Something has been set in motion here that Benjamin Franklin doesn't understand yet. And a clock is ticking. And sometimes folks, when they read this history, they don't really understand that. They don't understand that it's already too late, that the bad thing that these people dread, the thing that John Adams was worried was going to happen, what he called a, a rupture with the troops, the clock is ticking on that actually happening. And it's going to happen. Terrible as that may be, it will happen. Let us continue. Quote, Hutchison, I hear, flatters the ministry with assurances that you will soon be tired of the contest and submit, and he is supposed to be well acquainted with your temper and meanness of spirit. He is to have £2,000 a year, I suppose, out of the American revenue, and has taken a house in Golden Square. In these times, it seems, tis more profitable to betray than to serve the interest of one's country. The devil may make it profitable, but God himself cannot make it honorable. Pray, how do their blushing honors sit upon your new counselors? Will your assembly own them and do business with them? End quote. 
The man has a way with words. They all did. These, these founding fathers, the way that they wrote back then, they all had a way with words. Much, much better than what we read on social media these days, I'll tell you. It's a far cry. It's a far cry from what we read on social media these days, isn't it? Frankly speaking, what we read on social media sounds like the, the chicken scratches of caveman writing from back, back 10,000 years ago compared to what the founding fathers wrote. But that's just my opinion. That's one of the reasons why I enjoy reading these letters, by the way. It is a, um, it, it's a great experience to, to read the argument and to hear the words the way they put it together. It's brilliant. So he's talking about Hutchison again. We've heard that name before. Uh, go back in the podcast library. Uh, we'll, we'll, we've talked about uh, this man named Hutchison. I believe he's talking about the same person. Sounds like it. And 2,000 pounds a year, by the way, for all those people out there in the United States who don't understand British currency. That's, that's, that's currency. That's money. Think of it like $2,000. Obviously, it's not the same thing, but you get the idea. There is a line here in this paragraph that, frankly speaking causes me to almost skip a beat when I'm reading it. I remember when I read it for the first time, I was kind of like, whoa. Quote, In these times it seems tis more profitable to betray than to serve the interest of one's country. The devil may make it profitable, but God himself cannot make it honorable. End quote. And you wondered what wisdom you're gonna get from this podcast. Huh. And understand again, the wisdom does not come from me. I am a messenger. For the Founding Fathers. That's all that I am. And probably a mediocre messenger at best. But I do what I can. But this wisdom from Dr. Franklin is something that historians should take note of for the ages. Uh, it is so common in a country for this to be the case. A country that is on what I, what I would describe as the death spiral. When it becomes more profitable to betray a country than it is to serve the interests of the country. That is the beginning or near the beginning of the death spiral of a nation, of a society. And of course, that is the truth here. If, if he was right about this, it explains why the Revolutionary War actually happened. Because when, when this becomes the case, people tend to die in droves. And, you know, I, I spoke about this in a previous episode. I wasn't thinking about this letter when I was talking about this. I was thinking about, I was thinking about it for other reasons, but it's very similar. You know, this, um, this concept of political prostitution. This thing that we observe in the United States uh, in, in the form of lobbyists and politicians. Is that not exactly what he's talking about right here? And I'll, I'll let you answer that question. I'm not going to say whether it is or whether it isn't. I have my own opinion, and you already know what that is. I just said, basically. But when you see these kinds of interactions take place within a society, these, these interactions that we just describe as, oh, that's just how business is done. Is it just how business is done? Or is it something else? Quote, In these times it seems tis more profitable to betray than to serve the interests of one's country. End quote. That's something different than just how business is done. That's not business. That's something very, very different. And it explains certain other things, too, by the way. I'll give you an example of this. And I'm not, this isn't modern political, I, I, I don't think. This is just modern context. Modern context. Basically, betraying the principles of a country. How, how, can I give you an example of how the United States has betrayed its own principles for profit over serving the interests of a country? Yes, I can. And there's one that sticks right in the front of my mind, especially in the last few years. There is this country out there called Taiwan, a country recognized by almost nobody. And why is that? And the answer, money. It is more profitable to betray is that not the same thing? I mean, this is obviously external 
versus internal. But when I say that the United States has betrayed its own values, what country most closely aligns with the values? Well, let me rephrase. What country most closely aligns with the traditional values of the United States? That is to say, the, founding, the, the values articulated in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. That would be Taiwan. So why on earth did the United States stab Taiwan in the back? And why has... And this is nonpartisan. You know how I know this is nonpartisan? Some people are going to think, oh my gosh, Roman. Oh, here he goes. This is it. This is the moment when Roman goes off the goes off the edge and gets partisan political about this. No, actually, I'm not. Let me tell you why. Um, because this is a bipartisan issue. On a bipartisan basis, this country has betrayed its values and thrown in with profit over principle. Since the 1970s, this has been the case. So I don't want to hear that this is partisan. I don't want to hear that it's modern political, because it's really not. It's just reality, and it's just about the interaction between people and government, and between governments and people. And it's about greed, and it's about profit over principle, as I said. But the United States betrayed Taiwan in some respect. Now, it did it half-heartedly. Obviously, the United States is one of only a very few countries that actually militarily supports Taiwan. There are almost no other country in the world that does which makes us a little bit better than everybody else, but not a lot better, I don't think. A little bit better, yes. But still, why on earth would you stab that country in the back and support the other country, the one across the, the sea from Taiwan? The strait, I should say. Money. Profit. There's a modern context for you, you know, and are, are, there, are there examples of this that are internal to the United States where people—I I gave you one already— you know, the lobbyists, the, the political prostitutes. That's an example internal to the United States of the same kind of thing. You know, I mean, obviously, again, try to get a meeting with your congressman. Try to get a meeting with your federal elected representatives, your two senators, your congressman. Try to get a meeting with those people. Good luck. You might have some luck with your congressman, but even that's going to be a challenge. The two senators, you might as well try to make an appointment with the pope. Now, if you're a lobbyist and you carry a big, you carry a checkbook connected to a big bank account, you'll get a meeting tomorrow. Well, maybe not tomorrow. Sometime in the next few weeks. That's what I'm talking about. And so if you're curious, oh, well, Roman, this doesn't really apply to the United States today. There's no modern context for what Franklin's talking about here. Yeah, there is. I just gave it to you. I just gave you a, an intranational and an international version of both. It happens all over the place. You don't have to look very hard to find it. I'm just pointing it out to you, in case you're curious. Now, obviously... What Dr. Franklin is talking about here is these people who are, they, they don't want, they just want to go along with the king. They just want to go along to get along because they're concerned about their commerce being affected by all this. They don't really give a hoot and a holler about their rights and their liberties as much as they care about just making some money. And that's a problem. You know, and here's another example of this from this time period. Talk about betraying the fundamental values of your country for profit. I'm finally going to say it. Some people have been waiting. Roman, when are you finally going to talk about the issue that shall not be mentioned? Well, it's not the issue that shall not be mentioned, but I'll, I'll mention it one time here, and it probably won't be mentioned again until I do a full episode on this topic. Slavery. There, I finally said it. How in the world do you get to a point where people who believe in the Declaration of Independence, write the Constitution, pass the Bill of Rights, actually support such an institution as that? And the answer is right here in this letter from Dr. Franklin, quote, In these times, it seems tis more profitable to, to betray than to serve the interests of one's country. The devil may make it profitable, but God himself cannot make it honorable, end quote. I'm going to say it one more time, that last line. 
just to make it clear why, why it was that some people thought that they could do that thing in the United States after the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Quote, the devil may make it profitable, but God himself cannot make it honorable. End quote. The United States has a problem with this. It has a problem with stabbing its friends in the back internationally. It has a problem with political prostitution. And it has a problem, not anymore, but it did with this thing that went on in the South. Those states that just couldn't get rid of that god-awful atrocity in the South of the United States. Obviously, we need to pay attention to this. This is a problem. Dr. Franklin's telling you what's going on here. He's giving you kind of a roundabout explanation as to the why. And, you know, if you want another example... <laughs> In, in a modern context of this, you know, there are these, this, this kind of gives you another explanation of something, something, it tells you what direction to go in. There are these people in the United States, and outside the United States too, for that matter, that are often referred to as elites. Have you ever heard that term before? Have you ever heard a, a group of people referred to as the elites? Because I have. Now, they're not elite. There's nothing elite about them. It's, it's a, it's a farcical term. That really just is meant to make these people, it's, it's meant to set these people above everybody else. And it's gotten so bad, they even call themselves elites now. I'm not joking. It's not just the little people, so to speak, of, of the United States or anywhere else that call them elites. It's They call themselves that now. Now, where in American history have we seen a group of people referred to as the elites and everybody else not? And the answer to that question is, again, in the south of the United States, up until about 1865. And some of you folks are going to be curious, what in the world is he talking about? I'll leave it at that, because most of you folks are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. That, that, that date, 1865, it has a certain meaning to it, especially when you add 1861 to that. But that's just one event. I'm talking about the entire institution. It's the same thing, is it not? And don't you think that that's that the, the modern elites, as they call themselves, do you think that maybe they have the same designs on us as the people in the South who called themselves elites as well, by the way? Do you think they have the same designs on us as those elites did on the people that were beneath them in like 1865, 18, or before 1865? I would think that might be a legitimate concern. You might want to pay attention to that. I'm just saying, because I Benjamin Franklin opened the door and I walked right through it. I'm giving uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin gave me an opportunity to mention this, and I'm going to mention it. Some of you folks are going to disagree with me. Oh my gosh, Roman, you've gone too far. Oh good lord, this is too much, Roman. Oh, oh my gosh, I'll never listen to this podcast again. It's so horrible. Uh, the amount of reality that you're heaping up on top of our heads, I can't, I can't take it anymore. It's like hot burning coals heaped on top of my head. It's going to burn me alive. Oh my god. Yeah, I know. Um, some folks just can't handle it, but. What I'm trying to say is this, this concept of, you know, profit over principle and it's more profitable to betray than to serve one's own country. Understand that the country, the United States of America, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights don't mean crap to these people who call themselves elites. I'm just putting that out there. They don't care about the Bill of Rights. You might, but they don't care. And they don't care if it's there, if it's not there, if it's thrown into the ash heap of history. They don't care. Most of them. There's probably a couple that are that are good, but the rest of them, they don't care. So if you're ever if you ever if you're ever looking towards those people, again, these people who call themselves elites now, and most Americans call them elites too. I don't. I just call them the corrupt. And not corrupt because they got their they got their fortunes 
through illegitimate or illegal means. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they're spiritually, morally, ideologically corrupt. Because again, they don't they don't really give a fig about the Bill of Rights. You got to be wary of these people, and don't ever ever look to these people to save you. Because chances are, the in, the in the moment where you think you need them to save you, that boot that you feel on your throat is probably going to be theirs. I'm just putting it out there. Just like back in 1775, some people looked to the king and to parliament to save them from chaos. And they looked up and they observed that the boot that was on their throat, choking them half to death, was the boot of the king of Great Britain, the man they expected to be their great savior, the elite. He's not your friend. He will never be your friend. The tyrant will never, ever, ever be your friend. And we're going to get some more wisdom from Dr. Franklin in the rest of this letter that pertains to specifically that. And here we go. Quote, It is reported that 60,000 pounds in specie is gone over to bribe all your patriots and that the effect of even this paltry sum is much relied on. Let them first take the money by way of fining the corruptors, and then act with the same integrity as before, and with as much resentment against those whose money they have received, as the villainous attempt justly merits. This is the best way to discourage corruption, end quote. Corruptors. Quote, by way of fining the corruptors, end quote. What did I just call the elites again? Corrupt? That's exactly what Benjamin Franklin's talking about. Anyway, it's almost, it's almost like I know what I'm talking about here. Almost. And by the way, 60,000 pounds in specie, I had to look up that word at one point. It's, uh, it, it, it basically, you know, it implies some pecuniary uh, trans transaction, so pecuniary transfer of money. That is to say, a, a you know, literally a transfer of money. So he's basically saying that, you know, if, if somebody is attempting to bribe these patriots over there in the colonies, take the money and then basically give them the finger and continue doing what you're doing. In other words, continue standing for your rights and your liberties and... Go about your business um, supporting the legitimate governments of the colonies and your rights, liberties therein, and the, the general Congress that's being assembled, by the way, in Philadelphia. He, Benjamin Franklin seems to think that this is the, the best way to discourage the corruption uh, that's going on. Very interesting. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's what Benjamin Franklin thinks. I'm not going to say he's wrong. I'm just going to say that's what Benjamin Franklin thinks. Quote, If you should ever tamely submit to the yoke prepared for you, you cannot conceive how much you will be despised here even by those who are endeavoring to impose it on you. Your very children and grandchildren will curse your memory for entailing disgrace upon them and theirs and making them ashamed to their own country. If you continue on the contrary to make a virtuous, firm, and steady resistance, your every enemies will honor you, endeavor to reconcile themselves with you, and court your friendship, and your friends will almost adore you. Poltroons are neither regarded by friends or foes. They are fit only to bear burdens and be paid with contempt. They deserve no better treatment, end quote. And a poltroon, by the way, where he says here, quote, Poltroons are neither regarded by their friends or foes. They are fit only to bear burdens and be paid with contempt. They deserve no better treatment, end quote. Uh, a poltroon is basically a, um, a coward of sorts. Uh, what I would call a white flag individual. Uh, I, I've referred previously to white flag Americans. They're out there. Every country has them. 
And again, we all know that. We all know who they are. Well, not everybody individually, but we know the group. Uh, in, in the United States, we know who they are. We know the white flag Americans when we see them. Uh, that's basically what he's talking about here, to, to again, put it in a, a more modern vernacular. So what's he saying here? Remember when I said earlier that, you know, these, these elites, are, they're not your friend. They're not. And they're, they're just going to put their boot on your neck. And so, somebody out there is going to take this wrong and think that I, I, I despise people who are wealthy or something about that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about these people who call themselves elites. Who does that, by the way? Who calls themselves an elite? And believe me, these people do. I've heard them do it. I've, I've actually observed them actually do it, literally. I'm not making that up. And you got to stop calling them that, by the way. If you hear anybody refer to these people as the elites, you got to correct them and say, no, that's not who they are. Just just some advice. You don't have to do it. That's just a suggestion by Roman. Uh, take it for what it's worth. No extra charge, by the way, for that suggestion. But let's, let's, let's listen to what Dr. Franklin has to say about that concept of realizing that this, this, this person that you want to be your friend is actually the person with the boot on your neck. Quote, If you should ever tamely submit to the yoke prepared for you, you cannot conceive how much you will be despised here, even by those who are endeavoring to oppose it on you. End quote. So in other words, even the people who are trying to trample over the rights and liberties of the colonies will not have any respect at all for the people who just raise the white flag and surrender. If you want respect, stand up for your rights and your liberties. That's how you get respect. And that's exactly what the Founding Fathers did. They, uh, they took Benjamin Franklin's advice, and, they, and they, they instinctively knew it anyway. John Adams and Sam Adams, these were not people to be trifled with. Uh, they were determined people. And they knew, quote, If you continue on the contrary to make a virtuous, firm, and steady resistance, your very enemies will honor you. End quote. And they did, didn't they? In the end, didn't King George III have to reconcile himself with the colonies, eventually the United States of America? Yes. Now, he tri they tried to go back to their ways in Great Britain, and in 1812, James Madison said, Uh-uh, not again, and we had to fight another war with Great Britain. But after that, did we earn the respect of Great Britain? Yes, we did. Why? Because we never gave in. We never looked at the king over there across the... Uh, across the ocean, or the parliament, and said, well, these are the elites, don't you know? These are the elites. They know best. we got to just listen to the elites. They're going to lead the way. We've got to look to the elites to lead us. No, they didn't do that. They looked to themselves. They didn't look to the elites, because they didn't see them that way. They saw them as corrupt, as well they should, as well we should. And they depended on themselves, just like Benjamin Franklin said in his previous letter, quote, in my opinion, all depends on the Americans themselves, end quote. It was true in 1774, and it's true today. You look to these quote-unquote elites for your salvation, you're going to be gravely disappointed. One of these mornings, you're going to wake up with a boot on your throat, and you're not going to be able to get it off. It's going to be that, quote, yoke prepared for you, end quote, that Benjamin Franklin is talking about. They are preparing a yoke for your neck. Pay attention. You can disagree with me on that if you want to. And you could say, oh, that's a little bit too much modern commentary. Well, okay. I'm just trying to say the lessons from the Founding Fathers, they just go on and on and on in perpetuity. That is to say, they can be applied in perpetuity. They never expire. There's no expiration date on these lessons from the Founding Fathers. I'm trying to tell you that these lessons are still be, should still be applied today because they're applicable today. Because the same kind of thing that was happening in 1774 could happen today. It is happening in some countries around the world. No joke. And it could happen anywhere. And one of the ways it starts is these people set themselves above everybody else. Like royalty. Quote-unquote elites. They set themselves above. Be very wary when people try to set themselves above you in that kind of way. 
in some kind of a weird, bizarre class kind of way. Like the old royals or, you know, lords and vassals and, and all the rest of it. That old kind of medieval crap. It's, it's, it, you can see it in society today. It's amazing how much of this stuff just comes round and round and round. History repeats itself again and again and again. Benjamin Franklin, surely a student of history. He knew that. Uh, and we, So we got some great wisdom from Benjamin Franklin on, on what to watch out for, what to keep an eye out for, and what was going on in the mind of Parliament and the king. And how did he view the solution to all this? He was still optimistic, wasn't he? Still optimistic that this non-importation, non-consumption was going to be a solution, despite the fact that no restitution was requested. Despite the fact that these, these horrible acts were passed through Parliament and, and by the king, he still, he still was optimistic that this, uh, this trade situation might bring a resolution. But again, he has no idea the clock has already started. There is a certain inevitability about it. Maybe that's me looking at it in hindsight. You, you be the judge. It's a curious thought. Is that sense of inevitability that I convey, the clock being started, is that me looking back at it in hindsight? Or is that... Just the way that it was, was it always just going to, once this thing was set in motion, wasn't it always just going to end this way? Because of the recklessness of the King of England. I think it was, I think it was always going to be that way. Because the King set himself down a course, he wasn't going to be dissuaded. Because tyranny, when it, when it decides to finally drop the hammer, it will not stop. King George III was a curious character in some respects, but I think I think he set, set himself down this path and it was always going to end this way. It's unfortunate because it got a great many people killed. And all of them at one point in time, well, most of them anyway, at one point in time, uh, living under uh, the British government. Now, obviously, there were others who died, mercenaries and uh, Frenchmen who got involved in the war as well. So it's not just British uh, people who are under the British government, but that's a, that's a great many who were killed. Didn't have to be that way. But when tyrants decide to push the limits, there's no stopping them a lot of the time except to, to either just get rid of them or by force, one of the two. Uh, we learned that in, in Germany in the 1930s. I mean, there, there was a terrible tyrant there. And in North Korea today, I mean, what's going to end that tyranny? Nothing except just the obliteration of that group of people who run the place. Uh, you have to you have to get rid of them before that, that tyranny is ever going to end. Um, either some external force will have to get rid of them, or the internal forces will have to get rid of them. One of the two. Uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Because uh, it would be it would be great if the people in the north could live like the people in the south. That would be a that would be a beautiful thing. A lot better than it is today. I'll tell you that much right now. The people in the south they have their grievances, but I think the people in the north are a heck of a lot worse off. But anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. I'm gonna skip the concluding segment because we're going along on this episode, and I hope you uh, enjoy the beginnings of our wisdom from Dr. Franklin. And if you agree with some of my commentary around it, some of my context that I'm providing, leave a review and say so. If you disagree, leave a review on the podcast and say so. And again, I'm not fishing for reviews here. Honestly, I'm just looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, I don't really give uh, crap about the the number of reviews that I get or whatever, because again, I, I don't make money on this podcast. It's it's uh, This thing is not a money-making endeavor. Uh, I, I had a Patreon podcast that was intended to be that, but frankly speaking, I just didn't have time for it anymore. But um, this one is really just uh, an educational exercise for the most part. And so don't think that's why I'm fishing for reviews. It's really just to hear back from the uh, the other folks on the study group. I certainly hope you'll join me on the next episode of the podcast. And as we begin to, again, uh, dive deep in the letters from Dr. Franklin and the people that he was corresponding with. And with all that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you. Thank you.